Welcome to the Multiply Network Podcast, a podcast created to champion church multiplication, provide learning, and inspire new disciple-making communities across Canada. Hi there. Welcome to another podcast of the Multiply Network. My name is Paul Fraser, the host of the Multiply Network Podcast. Hope you're having a great summer. Did you know that the Pentecostal Assemblies of Canada is 100 years old, 100 years young, and we're ending with a party with the Pentecostal World Conference in Calgary at the end of August. So we as the Multiply Network decided we're going to take a focus and look at our 100-year history, specifically as a church multiplication movement. Who better then to have our resident historian and archivist, Jim Craig, and with him we cover 100 years of history in about 45 minutes with stories, We talk about the pioneering passion to reach Canada, the changes in church, how we organized, and we dabble a little bit even talking about what we need to do as we move forward into the future. I think knowing how we started can help us navigate our future. You're going to love this conversation that we had with Jim. It's coming up right now. Hi, Jim. Welcome to the Multiply Network podcast. Hey, Paul. How are you doing? Good. So glad that you're here. Um, I'm excited about this for lots of reasons. I've been reading through some of our history, uh, some of our uh, you know founding fathers and mothers, and who have just kind of led the way for POC and fascinated. But all of that is because of you and others like you that have taken the time to record it and to you know file it away in ways that we can find it how did you get how did you get into this uh maybe talk about the importance of archiving and uh maybe some of the process that that happens with that well i became an archivist in uh, 2000 when my friend and former bible school classmate bill morrow said you know what we need to professionalize our archives program it was started uh, late 70s early 80s by dr ron kidd who started to organize some things. And there was some staff, uh, some volunteer, some part-time, but not a great deal of uh, space or anything like that. And it kind of went along for, uh, you know, doing the best they could for a number of years under Doug Rudd. But uh, when we moved into this new building we're in now, uh, Bill said to me, you know what, we really need to step it up with the archives, get a proper facility and so forth. So he said, I want you to design the facility and get the training you need and so forth. So I, I was given three weeks to design a state-of-the-art archives, not knowing anything about that. But <laughs> thankfully, archivists are really good at sharing information. Yeah. And I had a couple of in Toronto who were tremendously helpful. And the Aussies, God bless them, had just published an entire book on the building of their new national archives with you know pages and pages on what kind of fire suppression system to use and all this kind of technical stuff for someone who didn't know what they were doing. So we got designed and put together when the building was built. The day we moved in, our collection grew by about 400 bankers boxes because we had done uh, a a records management thing before we moved to make sure we threw out the right stuff and kept the stuff we shouldn't throw out, which had not happened when we moved from uh, uh, Overly Boulevard to Century Avenue. But this move, it it worked out real well. We got an archivist to help us do that. So anyway, long story short, I took um, something like uh, a dozen courses, weekend courses with the Archives Association of Ontario to get enough theory to sort of know what I was doing more or less, and then started the journey uh, full-time for three years of figuring out how to apply that to our organization and our collection and our resources. So we are very blessed. We have a state-of-the-art facility. It's about, uh, the actual archives room is about 860 square feet, so it's not that big. 
but with this uh, high-tech movable shelving, we have we will have we got one more shelf to put in there. They're about ten grand a piece, but we will have a kilometer of shelf space in that room. Now, the big thing about an archives is temperature and humidity controls because we have two things that we're supposed to do. Very simple: preserve it and make it available. Yeah. If we don't do the first, we can't do the second. Right, so right. Fanatical about preservation, which means we have a twenty thousand dollar furnace who, that covers just this little room. So that's wow. about the size of your basement. But your furnace in the basement didn't cost that much, I don't think. I hope not. And it very accurately maintains that room at twenty degrees Celsius and forty five percent relative humidity. We actually have a fifteen hundred dollar scientific instrument that creates a written record of every day of every month yeah. to show us that we've been on track and that the stuff in there has been kept properly. Mm-hmm. So an ordinary piece of paper today uh, will last 200 years in that room, no problem. Wow. Which means, yeah, which means it's well beyond my concern. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. That's incredible. So that's, that's good, yeah. Well, in archiving is, is a lot of fun. I have a background. I have two degrees in history besides my ministry training. And I also just uh, enjoy information and learning. Yeah. That's my favorite uh, thing in life. Uh, I don't know if you can see behind me here. Well, we can't see this podcast, but I have about 150 binders in this room that I don't have room for at home of yeah. personal research because I've written, well, my, my writings in the archives occupy two pay, two, two shelves, 44 yeah. inch shelves. Yeah. So I've got a lot of curriculum and Bible college courses and other studies and stuff. And I'm just interested in far too much, but Anyway, so I'm I've I've got a history personally of collecting information, so it fits pretty well. It's, you got to be a bit of a pack rat to some extent. Right? Oh, totally. And uh, you know, when I took the my first day at the office, you know, walking me around and touring around, I, I remember bumping into you and uh, and I and I can't remember who was. I think I maybe was like a self guided tour. Anyways, walk around like, hey, I'm Paul. What do you do? And I couldn't believe we had. Like this high tech room that would would protect these uh, documents and but they're also on digital, right? Like we would have most of them scanned. Would that be would that be no, true? Not most of them. We okay. scan things to distribute them, which is really amazing. So we can put it on a photocopier, yeah. and in two minutes, it scans, shows up on my desktop, and I send it. So we send nothing out by mail. Like we used to have to photocopy oh, okay. hundreds of pages a year and mail them to people. Okay. So this is a wonderful way to distribute things. So anything that's gone out that way has been scanned. We've also done some purpose scanning, all the general executive minutes uh, up to a certain point, uh, general conference reports. Our dear friends in the Assemblies of God archives in Springfield have scanned the entire Pentecostal testimony for us. Wow. And then kept up with the new editions as they're you know made digitally before they're published. Yeah. So we have about 25,000 pages of documentation there. And it, the testimony is amazing, especially the early years. Yeah. Like you would get two or three page small print reports from a missionary. Detail yeah. and yeah. stories and yeah. fantastic because people read. That's all they had, right? Yeah. Time went on, of course, uh, as of about 20, 25 years ago, there's hardly any news at all in the testimony. It's more stories, yeah. which was the purpose, you know, that it had to change to. Well, but regardless, and we have all kinds of other stuff. But, um, yeah, it's it's a really fascinating job on a number of levels because I have to look at all sorts of things. Like, for example, people ask me that question. You're going to digitize your archives? I say, well, well unless you've got $500,000 you don't need. And, oh, by the way, once it's digitized, it will disappear spontaneously on some schedule nobody knows. Yeah. Because at some point that PDF will not open, in which yeah. case you've yeah. lost the record. Yeah. If it's a paper, 200 years. If it's digital, who knows? And Interesting. It, well, you can convert it. Well, you want to convert 2 million files? Yeah. On a regular schedule? Yeah. Using software that doesn't exist yet? Yeah. Lots of fun. So it's it's a challenge. On the, and then audiovisual just makes life even more interesting. If I put the camera around the room here, you'd see that I've got shelves full of things like slide projectors. Yeah. And uh, 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 
16 millimeter film projectors. Yeah. I got a hundred, I got 460 millimeter films. I could digitize them. If you got 150 grand, you don't need. Yeah. And so I've had two requests for films in 20 years. So probably not a good investment. <laughs> but on the other hand, there will come a day when we can't access them. Hollywood has already had this problem. Yeah. Even with big famous films. Yeah. If they hadn't thought about it and digitized them. They're yeah. gone for good. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, it's yeah, interesting. It's, on those. And then of course the story and the yeah. The well, I mean, obviously we're not going to talk about the you know the process of archiving and all that. Uh, you know, I'm not sure everyone would be as interested as maybe I would be, but I do, <laughs> I do, I do, I do want to dive into because one of the things that we're focusing on for the Multiply Network this month is the centenary of the PAUC hundred years. You've read through what I would only guess to be thousands of documents. And uh, but specifically, you know, as I kind of sent you the email, I said, hey, would you consider doing a podcast as it relates to church multiplication through the early history of our movement? Um, I know you've done a bit of research on that. You've read a bunch of things. Why don't you take us through a little bit of kind of the church multiplication, church planting? At that point, it was called home missions, you know, if you remember, um, why don't you kind of take us through a little bit of our history as it relates to church planting? Sure. Happy to. It's a fascinating subject and a complex one, but I did spend some time and tried to condense uh, a lot of material. But basically, um, the impulse for church planting, and we know this, came from our uh, theology. So we believed in evangelism because everybody needed to be saved, and Jesus was coming at any moment. Right. So our eschatology fired our evangelistic zeal. Of course, that's not the case so much today, but uh, regardless, it's still there. So the, the real question is, though, how did they do it? What was the method? How, how did churches get planted and started? So I divided the POC's history up into probably three areas. The first would be what I would call the entrepreneurial approach. So there are some wonderful examples of this, of churches that were started uh, mainly by individual initiative. Someone heard from God or they really felt a call to go to a little town somewhere and they started out uh, often, uh, you know, they get a few people together. Uh, maybe they'd have what's called a cottage prayer meeting, which would be local interested Christians getting together to pray for a revival or to start a new church. And um, there would be a lot of a lot of commitment to prayer and fasting as part of that initial process. You can read about this in the very first issue of the testimony, and I was, if this was a really? visual, I was going yeah. to hold up this authentic original copy of the first issue of the testimony. Yeah. We actually have three of them. Yeah. But on page two, there's a, a long description uh, by William Draffin, who signed the POC charter, of a revival in a little place called Mill Roche. So Mill Roche isn't there anymore. It's under the St. Lawrence River. It oh, was really? one of the towns that disappeared when they expanded the seaway so big ships could get into Lake Ontario from the ocean. Yeah. But it's an amazing story of... Uh, God's power moving and healings and people being drawn to Christ and so forth. I won't take the time to go through it, but uh, not atypical of the earliest days and how they went about it. Yeah. So very much driven by someone hearing from God and taking the steps necessary. And I see some of this coming back, but I'll touch on that later. Um, so this process, uh, there were several people in different provinces who who were church planters, who did a lot of this early stuff. J.E. Barnes, who became the superintendent of BC, he did a lot of this stuff. Uh, so did some others out there. Walter McAllister in Saskatchewan, for example. John T. Ball in Ontario, who started off in Owen Sound, and then he went to Markham. And, and Markham was actually our first church building, not Kinburn. But, okay. And it still stands. It's something else today. But yeah. then there's Ray Watson. Ray Watson was a bank robber in the United States. He got <laughs> saved. Of course, that's a great line if you're an evangelist. Former bank robber. Former know. bank robber and, and great church planter. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Come on. I love it. Well, 
he 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 blew through the Maritimes uh, and started churches in several communities there. You know, the evangelists coming into town. Of course, back in the day, the twenties and the thirties, you could have advertised an evangelistic meeting and people would come. Yes. I mean, today, if you said that, they would say, let's run them out of town, yeah. you know, whatever. Yeah. But uh, And they would gather a crowd, and people get saved and healed and filled with the Spirit and so forth. Then he would bring in a pastor and move on to the next town. He did some church planting also in Ontario, places like Brockville. So that was the entrepreneurial approach, and, and it, yeah. it held sway uh, in various ways for, for some period of time. You had some people who spent most of their career as church planter pastors, like Art Bell. I love Art Bell's yeah. story from B.C. I don't know if you know that story. No, I don't. Uh, Art was a graduated from the Bible school out west in about 47, pastored for a little while. Then he went, uh, it was in central northern BC, and he went up up that, that whole corridor up there for about 14 years and planted about six, six or seven churches, um, two or three years at a time. My favorite story is the church at Kitimat, which he was responsible in one respect for starting. Kitimat was a uh, company town, Aluminum Company of Canada. It was just a tiny village, uh, Indian village or First Nations village to begin with. And when they were building the town, he wanted to go in and see about getting property to start a church. And nobody was allowed in except the construction workers. They were building a smelter. They were drilling a hole through a mountain to build a hydroelectric plant and stuff. There was no way he could get in. So he contacted a guy by the name of Warnier in a nearby town who was a POC guy, who was a trapper with a 400 square acre trap line mm -hmm. and he walked with this guy through the through the bush and the mountains for two solid days in the winter and he'd never done anything like this before when he arrived there were there were cabins that the trapper had where they stayed at for a couple of nights when they arrived in kitimat uh they were the only outsiders there of course and he was a mess i mean bell was a mess he just you know <laughs> his feet had been bleeding and all this stuff so he walks into the superintendent's office and says he wants to, to talk to him, and, and the secretary takes one look at him and says, absolutely not, throws him out. So Art, Art goes around the back of the building, goes in the back door, gets into the guy's office, and the guy who had front warned he's just waiting for him to get thrown out the front door again. Yeah. Instead, 45 minutes later, Bell walks out and with, with a, a plot and a, and a pledge to provide the materials to build the church. Wow. Guy. So yeah. you know, and I guess they walk back after that. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. The determination of some of these guys was remarkable. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, there's the story of, um, oh no, his name escapes me. Uh, he he worked on Lake Winnipeg. He actually refurbished an old boat. You know the gospel boat stories on the yeah, West yeah, Coast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. But this was around the same time, just after the war. This guy had been a medic in the war, and been wounded a couple of times, and he. He rebuilt a boat. He was on staff at Calvary Temple at the time, and he sailed around the shores of Lake Winnipeg. His first trip, he had 100 conversions in various little uh, First Nations. Wow. Uh, I mean, Lake Winnipeg's got a huge shoreline. It's yeah. just monster. And so he did that for a while. Jacob Fair was his name. And then he got up. He got frustrated because the lake freezes over in the winter, right? Yeah. So he built his own snowmobile from scratch. And he was featured in Time Magazine as a snowmobile preacher with a photograph of his big honking handmade snowmobile so he could reach these communities. You know, That's amazing. That kind of determination yeah. and creativity yeah. uh, was characteristic up until the 40s and sometimes even the 50s. John Spillenar flying up in the north and some of the guys who worked with him, unbelievable stories yeah. that they had to tell of that determination. So the second approach that characterized a large chunk of the of the POC's history um, is what I call the systematic approach. We could use other names for it, but to my way of thinking, and I've done quite a bit of work on this, is it grew out of our cultural context. So our cultural context was saturated with something called functional rationality. So functional rationality is the idea of technique. If you have the right technique, anything has to work. And it's predicated upon a mechanistic view of the universe, which, of course, is not accurate at all. I've done some work in this in my theology of organizational change because it really has a, a lot to say with 
how we get things accomplished, how we change things. Because if you're trying to change a machine as opposed to trying to change an organism, it's a completely different process. Right. Anyway, I won't go into those details. That's that's the theoretical. But th so there's a societal shift that increasingly is trying to apply scientific principles, sociology, behavioralism, and all that kind of stuff to seeing things done, whether it's running a successful business or doing marketing or raising your kids or having great sex with your wife. I mean, there are manuals that were created for all that stuff. <laughs> Just would look at us and say, who are you people? <laughs> that you would think of those things like that. Seriously. You know, who are you people? <laughs> Poor Paul is turning in his grave. But anyway, in about 1954, Donald McGavern, which is a name, of course, many know, uh, is kind of the father of the church growth movement. He wrote a book called The Bridges of God, a study in the strategy of missions. And it was a very important book because what he said was we should be trying to reach people groups, not places. Okay. Focus on people groups and the culture and understand, et cetera. Okay. And, and tremendous insight. What is interesting is that this work grew out of the overseas missions context. Okay. In the Pentecostal testimony, the first reference to the word or the phrase church planting comes in 1952 about a missions conference in Kenya. Okay. And it's coined by uh, George Upton, uh, who was the head of the missions department at that time, very effective leader. Yeah. And his two sons, Roy and Gordon, are well-known in our movement yep. earlier days. In a later article, he makes the case that the church planter should move on once the church is started and let the pastor take over. Hmm. And he used the example of Paul, who didn't stay around very long. He cultivated local leadership, and then he left them in the hands of the Spirit. Yeah. Trust that, he, that that would work. Yeah. And of course, we don't take that attitude, and uh, maybe we should be thinking about the fact, I wonder how many church planters have ever thought about the fact they should do this again and again, as opposed to staying the pastor of the fruits of their planting. Yeah. Interesting. The reason, they, the reason they pioneer, I think, is because they have an apostolic, as opposed to a pastoral gift, sure. very different gifts. Yeah. A pastor is a doctor who runs a hospital. Yeah. An apostle is one who starts hospitals. Yeah. Yeah. Very different. Gift. Interesting. Anyway, Interesting. Very cool. Yeah. So um, over the next 20 years, there's only seven references in the testimony to church planting, and they all have to do with overseas missions. So interestingly, the whole church growth movement started with an overseas insight, and our, our, our language around church planting was applied overseas only to begin with. So the first domestic use comes from Gordon's, uh, sorry, George, uh, Gordon's son, uh, sorry, George's son, Roy Upton. Okay. And it's with reference to the POC National Evangelism Committee in 1974. And he used it alongside terms like uh, evangelism, pioneering, etc. So McGavin's work spawned a revolution in North America and then around the world uh, about how we think about the church yeah. and how to grow the church. Yeah. And, of course, Wynne Arn, Peter Wagner, other people uh, got involved in that and jumped on the bandwagon as consultants and so forth. Now, um, at this stage, new churches were often mothered, mothered by other churches or sponsored by the district. That's in the POC context. Yeah. So it's interesting. Our church planting started out uh, on a pioneer, you know, yeah. Go the alone, the entrepreneurial. Let's yep. go for it. We're yeah, we're exactly. we're we're creating skidoos. We're making boats. <laughs> Whatever, we're yeah. we're Whatever we're we're walking trap lines because there's yep. people that need Jesus, and we're going right. by ourselves and. But that shifted. Now, did the did the language shift from home? Like, did we see home missions show up, like after the the seventies, or was it pretty much church planting by then? Well, home missions, oh, yeah, church planting came later. Okay, uh, home missions would have been the, the the title of the department, yeah, and the function, yeah. But again, home missions was about unreached peoples in Canada primarily, right? Okay, because the north, 
yeah. Quebec, which is still the largest unreached missions field almost in the world. Yeah, right yeah, in yeah. And, and other uh, niche areas, okay. First Nations and so forth, all came under home missions. So we didn't really think of it in terms of reaching the Canadian population at large, the average population. Oh, I see. Right? Yeah. These special, like it is now with the gaps with Mission Canada to right. some extent. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So uh, the church planting language uh, became to be used in the church growth movement language and ethos began to pervade our thinking and our efforts. So there was a church growth committee struck in 73 that evolved into the PACE program, Pentecostal Assemblies Church Extension yep. program. Uh, and this was because there was a big concern or a growing concern at the national level about an overemphasis on programs in the local church, a dearth of individual soul winning, yeah. an attractional strategy. Of course, we've never heard of that in our day yeah. at the local church level and fewer new churches being started. Now, interestingly, if you look at the statistics, yeah. the POC grew by 160 churches between 40 and 50. Okay. The next 10 year period, it grew by um, uh Let's see, in this about the same, 156 churches. Yeah. The, the next 10-year period, however, was only 70 churches in 10 years. And what, what decade was that? Was that the 70s? That was 60 to 70. Oh, 60 to 70, okay. 60 to 70, 40% lower than the decade of either of the two yeah. dates, decades before. It. Okay. Great. Yeah. So it had already started to, to slow down significantly before they, they started to do a lot about this. So um, the result was... Um, a more systematic approach to church growth, using the methods, setting goals, graphing growth, doing studies, all this kind of thing. Um, and of course, that led into uh, a little bit later on to the uh, decade of destiny. Yeah. So in the nineties, uh, yeah, and, and ironically, this did produce some results going back to the seventies. Yeah. With the net growth of numbers reaching one hundred and five between seventy and eighty. Okay. One hundred and eighty-nine between eighty and ninety, but between ninety and two thousand, the growth rate was much much smaller, like half that, despite really? the decade of destiny. Really. Which is interesting. Very Probably interesting. A little frustrating. But yeah. It was in national office. Yes. Yeah. Sure. That never happens. But um, then you had. Uh, I think an intensification over time of this technique idea. So I looked at the 2001 West Ontario district church planting manual, which is about a hundred pages long. Yeah. And I looked at the feasibility study you had to write. There was three pages of single space requirements for that feasibility study. Yeah. It would take you probably a year because they want to know every other church in your area and their programs and their budgets and their staff yeah, yeah. and all this kind of stuff. And, you, you know, you'd have to produce a 25-page document, yeah. which it's probably a little bit overkill, I think. Yeah. Interestingly, today, if you go on the WD website, there's a single page yeah. with, uh, what is it, nine, uh, or six, nine or eight blue dots, yeah. a, little, a little phrase in each yeah. of what they want to know. And a lot of it's about who are you yes. and why want to do this yeah as opposed to the detail of you know down to the grass blade level and if i can jump in there too yeah. i i actually like that now that we're 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 discerning the calling more opposed to like the gifting the skill set you need that you need the character pieces all those are important yep. what i like today about what we're doing in assessment for planters is i think we're spending a little bit more time on discerning the person their mm-hmm. calling and developing yep. relationship because in the end, that's what's going to get them through the tough times is yep. having relationship and family around them, pushing them forward. But that's yep. a fascinating catch, you know, yep. uh, that it that it was really a bit more about systems, you know, 30 years ago. You needed to know this and you had to this, this I dotted, this T crossed. Yep. 
Yeah, fascinating. Well, those, those, those approaches can tend to take over. Yep. as they've done in every area of life. But yep. thankfully, we, we've moved away from that a little bit. And we have to keep in mind, even those numbers that were discouraging, those were net figures. So we have to ask the other question, why were churches closing? Yes. The churches were always closing. Yeah. Why are they closing? And they're closing in, I, I suspect, record numbers now. Yeah. But part of that is demographic. So if you go to Newfoundland, the PON is in big trouble yeah. because they're closing out ports. Oh. Some of these small places, the government goes in and says, here's 300 grand for your house. I'm sorry, we're closing your town. We can't provide hospital really? service, yeah. ambulance, or any of that. It's just not viable. Yeah. And with the loss of the oil revenues they're struggling with right yeah. now, yeah. closing towns all over the place, which yeah. had churches in them. So the same is happening in other places of Canada, yeah. depending on the economic stuff and, and whatnot. Yeah. So that's that that's something that we need to do a more systematic study of that, but that hasn't been done. Um, so there is space opening up, as you already have said for the return of some sort of entrepreneurial model. Yeah. And we see this now in the stories of our Mission Canada workers, many of the stories that you're telling. Yeah. At Chapel here in the office uh, two weeks ago, we had Anna Morgante from Winnipeg. Do you know Anna? Uh, yeah, I think so, yeah. Mission Canada worker in yep. downtown Winnipeg. Yep. And fascinating for me to hear her tell the story of how meeting poor people pulled her into helping them find housing, helping them mm. with stuff with their kids, which is yeah. how she initially contacted them. And she sort of said, I didn't expect to be doing this. Yeah. But these doors open and yeah. I couldn't knock walk through them. Yeah. That's the that's the leading of the spirit. Love it. Where he has you know I find he has something in mind that kind of gets us going in the right direction. And then he refines yeah. by closing and opening doors as we go along. And we end up someplace where we think, how on earth did I ever get here? But it's wonderful. <laughs> I feel the same way. That that's yeah. kind of my story where I'm at right now. And maybe you're the same boat too. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, so the other question is uh, the millennials that are they're taking over leadership right now, and you've yourself noted yeah. uh, the need to bring them into leadership more quickly and, yeah. and trust them and give them give them real leadership because of the demographic uh, issue yeah. involved. So that's important, and of course, the need for mentoring because they very much want that as well. Yeah. Uh, and of course, the spiritual factors behind this, which you can't really uh, or I haven't uh, tried to document. That's another whole process. Of course. You know, of those sorts of issues, but at least it's a bit of a sense that we started off entrepreneurial, uh, every person for themselves, just trust in Jesus, got a yep. burden for the Lord, go and do it, see great things happen, to a more systematic approach, motivated by the fact that we weren't getting it done as much before, I think. Right, yeah. And then it began to take over, and now we've moved away from that, hopefully, back to our roots yes. of saying, what is the Holy Spirit saying to you? Yeah. Right? Yeah. Because that should be who we are, I think. Yeah. As and people and yeah. And I think we've learned some lessons along the way, hopefully, too, because I, I remember talking with someone who was planting in the 80s, and they were saying, basically, you know, the district or whoever, you, you know, was was kind of their overseeing, if it was a senior pastor sending them or a district or whatever, it's like, here's $1,500 and a town. Yeah, exactly. Go. And, yeah. and a lot of them burnt out. A lot of them didn't you know, have the support mechanisms, there was no assessment, there was no funding, there was no training, there was hardly any books on it at that point. As you noted, it was just starting to become a term that people were using. And so it's this idea of like, okay, I love that entrepreneurial heart again. I think we need to recapture it. I was reading, we were talking about this just before the podcast about this idea of pioneering. We have to get back to that pioneering. But that doesn't ha mean you have to pioneer alone, like you're in a field pulling rocks by yourself. <laughs> the Lone Ranger, yeah. yeah, the Lone Ranger. No, no, you you do this. You pioneer as a team. Yeah. 
We pioneer as a movement that we work together and, and we look at those places and see what see what God is was leading us to do. And uh and uh yeah. So I'm just excited about this future that this as you may mention, the millennials, I think there's a heart and and certainly the Gen Z have a heart to just like let's try something new. And uh, we need to we need to engage that. Any other thoughts about our history? Because I do want to talk about where you see us moving forward. Well, I mean, uh, it, it's never been a more challenging time. Of course, every generation says that. Yes. But if you look at the trajectory of Western society, uh, it, we are the only place in the world where Christianity is not growing. Yeah. Uh, or growing. I've done some work on this and some thinking on this from a, a sort of the 30,000 foot level, because until recently I was teaching church history at our Bible college in Peterborough. Yeah, yeah. And I discovered the work of a man named Andrew Walls, uh, who you may have heard of. I, mm. When I was in the missions department years ago, I knew of his work. But Andrew was a, he's retired now, a Scottish a missiologist, a global church historian, who started to notice some, some things that were, I think, are incredibly important for us to understand. Yeah. So he talks about uh, the fact that uh, the the advance of the Christian religion is serial. In other words, it gr- it starts in one place, it spreads to the periphery, it glo- grows and flourishes there, and then begins to die in the center and replant itself on the periphery. Interesting. Think of the Greco-Roman world and then Europe. Of course, Europe was a Christian continent for a long time, but Europe was also responsible for the modern missionary movement. Okay. Catholics, 200 years before the Protestants started, and then the Protestants that spread the gospel around the world. But the least Christian place on earth now is Europe, and the most Christian place on earth is Africa and mm-hmm. Asia. Yeah. And so we're part of that process because we're Western, and we've had those advanced society challenges You know that, that of course, some, some amongst us are trying to export uh, you know, along with, uh, along with everything else. And that's another whole, whole bigger issue. But I, I taught my students about seven eras of church history and seven principles that help us understand something really important. Yeah. It's when the gospel enters a new cultural space, we learn something we never knew before about the gospel. Yeah. So when the gospel goes into, for example, uh, uh, Africa, not Africa, but into the Greek culture, we start to think about who God is in philosophical terms, in terms of essences. And the Nicene Creed is a Greek document for Greek thinking people, which we are because of our education. But when it goes into Europe, then the idea of Christendom comes along because Europe was a tribal society and there was no pluralism in the tribe. You had the same religion as your chieftain or you were gone. That was it. And so that whole idea of Christendom, which was had a lot of problems, was inculcated and brought into the gospel there. So my my point in teaching my students this is, look, guys, I've been in the ministry for 45 years and I do not live in the same country I was born in. Yeah, I lived in the States for three and a half years. The rest of the time I've been here. Okay, And it's a totally different country. Yeah. I believe in your lifetimes that will happen again. Yeah. So you better know how to translate the gospel into a new cultural space yeah. without losing the gospel. Okay, but seeing a new expression of it. Yeah. And that's part of the process I hope we're beginning to see yeah. with the younger generation. So that's another whole conversation. Yeah, yeah. Fascinating. So why don't you because one of the things that we talked about before the podcast, just kind of prepping and the impact that that has had on you, this PAC history, this entrepreneurial, it's actually led you to do something a bit different. Why don't you take a few minutes to talk about what God has maybe pushed you into, maybe it's an open door here. And then, uh, and then we want to talk about maybe, you know, where we're headed in the future. 
Well, I mean, it wasn't simply my archives work, but other factors in my life. But um, uh, first of all, my archives work has given me appreciation for my spiritual family. Yeah, I didn't grow up evangelical or a born again family. It was in United Church. Got saved when I was seventeen. Um, and so, uh, the more I've I've learned about our fellowship, the more I've appreciated yeah. uh, that I belong to an amazing family, and yeah. it is my family. Yeah. And I, every time I turn around, I was talking to somebody the other day, and, and they were looking at pictures from Stone Church. They got any pictures of Stone Church? And I pulled out this big file, and I'm showing, oh, there's Brother So and So. I remember him. He was, you know, or this guy I yeah. worked with when I first started, and all these people I knew yeah. personally. Because after you're around for a while, you get to know a few people. Sure. And, it's, and there is a tremendous sense of family that, that I think is important. The other thing that's important about, about knowing about the past is your past is your identity. Yeah. If you've ever seen um, the movie uh, Concerning, uh, Concerning Henry, it starred Harrison Ford, very unusual role. It was a story of a man who was a real arrogant, selfish individual, goes to buy a pack of smokes at the store, gets shot in the head by a guy doing a, you know, knocking over a uh, bodego, and he loses his memory, Mm. and he doesn't know who he is, and he turns out to be this amazing, gentle, loving person, because he'd forgotten who he was, but if we forget who we are, we'll stop being what we are. Yeah, our whole identity is about who, where we come from. Who are we? Yeah, as a movement, it's as a movement. Yeah, yeah and as individuals within that. So that's that's part of the the foundation of it. Now, where that led me, and and uh, through other circumstances of. Uh, one of which was actually getting laid off as the archivist after three years, along with 11 other people in this office, and just uh, ending up uh, in a spiritual wilderness for a long time. Uh, and there's there's those who've written books on this stuff, but the, often the, the the prelude to something fresh and new is a, a very difficult time of testing in your life. Sure. Where you literally say, you know, my Lord knows the way through the universe and all I have to, or through the wilderness and all I have to do is follow. But sometimes it's pretty hard to follow. Yeah. There's no, nothing on the horizon but dryness and death and and pain and suffering and struggle. So, I mean, that may well be a shaping experience for some of our future church planters. Yep. But don't discount what God can do with your life just because you go through a struggle. Totally. Quite the contrary. I don't yeah. find any leaders in the New Testament who didn't start out that way. No. Okay, you look at Moses then yeah. and so forth. So that's all part of it. But where it's led me in my own uh, life was involvement with a community. Uh, and I was doing different things, putting together different types of work and so forth and, and ministry work, but really felt a call to begin to pray for my city of Mississauga, city of about three quarters of a million people, sixth largest in the country, and uh, had a heritage, uh, I won't go into the details now, but has an amazing spiritual heritage. Um, remarkable spiritual heritage, unlike any other place in the country, in my opinion. We actually had a First Nations chief who was a Spiritfields Methodist minister. Hmm. And he was training and sending out evangelistic bands to other First Nations communities in the 1720s. Nice. You will never find that anywhere else in this country. I yeah. can guarantee you. Yeah, that's, nice. That's the soil we're sitting on. But So I got involved with the community and started to learn about uh, how communities function and local yeah. governments and, and so forth. And just became aware of needs yeah. that I saw, one of which was uh, a facility in, in in the little town of Streetsville within Mississauga, where I lived for 26 years, of people on the streets. I mean, it's a beautiful little community. It's upscale. But you had street people. Who are these people? Well, they yeah. turned out to be mental patients who lived sometimes up to 20 of them in seven rooms in a filthy old house, wow. giving their entire ODS beach paycheck to the um, you know, to the guy who owned the house who became a millionaire. We looked into him. Yeah. And lousy food, nothing to do all day long but bounce off each other in this home. Yeah. Police called three times a week and so forth. Just hell on wheels. 
And I discovered some loving Christians who were going in to be friends with these people because they had no family. They had no friends. Yeah. When you have a serious mental illness, the family's long gone. They cannot cope yeah. with that. Yeah. And so they take them out for coffee. They would celebrate their birthday. They would just talk to them. Yeah. And I said to them, are you guys praying for them? And they said, well, no. I said, okay, come on, come on. Let's start praying for them. So we started a prayer meeting. Yeah. Very long story short, a year ago last summer, Peel Region gave an amazing Christian organization in Hamilton called Indwell Christian Homes, $21.5 million. Wow. Build a six-story residence with 66 rooms for these people to live in as long as they want at about less than half of their monthly check. Wow. These are an amazing kingdom organization. How yeah. does that happen? I mean, it wasn't all me by a long shot, but how do you start with a prayer meeting and end up with a residence? And that's one of three that they plan to build. Yeah. So, you know, what God can do is just way beyond what you can imagine. Well, we got, yeah, like that. And that, that just is such a great story too, because it's that entrepreneurial being spirit led. And while we, while we believe in strategy, while we believe in, you know, good work and good research and doing our doing our homework. There's this there's this other aspect where God just says, if you're willing to walk, I'll take care of all that. If you're willing exactly. to step forward in obedience, if you're willing to push forward. And this is what I'm praying for in our movement, honestly, yeah. as we think like, about moving forward. I don't know how many times I've told people, Paul, I have no idea what I'm doing. I've never done anything like this before. Right. I don't want to lead anything. I, I don't, I, you know, I call myself a chief sneezer because what I do is spread idea viruses. Yeah. And I also connect people with each other, which is an amazing ministry in itself. But because of that, I mean, I've gotten involved now with the mental health needs of first responders. Amazing. And their families. And yeah. uh, the Lord is connecting me with these incredible people who are just accepting me, which is a m- remarkable because first responder communities tend to be very closed because yeah. they have a life experience different from other yes. Canadians. Yes, 100%. The average Canadian will, will experience one trauma in their life. The average police officer will experience 200 to 400 in his 20-year career. Wow. And the mental health effects. And who's going to help? And who's helping them? Who's helping them? Well, I believe the Church of God should help. Come on. And so the, the doors God has opened, the funding he has provided, I literally lie in bed every night and say, God, if you, you know, if I'm screwing this up, just give me a smack <laughs> upside the head and get me lined up again, because I do not know what I'm doing. Yeah. But it's wonderful. And yeah. the people I've met and the favor of God and things I've done, it's just utterly remarkable. Yeah. That's all. So I just stumble on ahead and just say, okay, Lord, well, don't let me miss anything important. <laughs> and and that's one of the things that that I love the language of our movement, starting with our, our general superintendent uh, and the general executive, is that we we didn't say we're just gonna plant churches. We wanna we wanna start uh new disciple making communities that don't always look like a church. Absolutely. Like the stuff you're doing doesn't always look like a church. Uh, the no. stuff that Mission Canada is doing doesn't always look like a church. Our global workers, our yeah. churches that yeah. that are starting, you know, new campuses and satellites don't always look like a new church, and that's okay. Yeah. I love that disciple making community idea where it's like it's actually about making disciples, and it's okay if it looks different. Because here's the thing, I think the models that we love right now, twenty years from now, won't be the predominant models. No, they won't. No. no, things well, are see, shifting that quickly. To, uh, I try to be the eyes and ears of the church in the sense that if you read my business card, it says uh, helping churches find new ways to love their neighbors. Yeah. Because churches don't love their neighbors. Yeah. They spend all their money on themselves. Yeah. By and large. Now that's changing. We have some yeah. remarkable churches that are opposite. That's true. We need to embrace what I call kingdom mission, which is loving your neighbor. Yeah. Because if you don't love your neighbor, Jesus said, you don't love God. Yeah. And the way to, to shine the light is not by talking. Yeah. It's by loving, yeah. because 
good works will cause them to glorify God, which could be works done in the power of the Spirit supernaturally, or they could be helping a first responder's family find the support they need to cope with the fact that dad comes home every night a vegetable because of what he's dealt with every day so on the hard. job. So hard. And will people come to Jesus? Of course they will. Do I walk in the door talking about winning people to Jesus? Absolutely not, because every door would shut in my face. I walk in saying, how can I help? How can I care? How can I love? No questions asked beyond that. Yeah. This has been so good, Jim, and we're 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 running out of time. But I do want to give you a chance to uh, maybe you know with the full kind of picture that ah, you wouldn't have all the picture, but you'd have a fuller picture certainly than I would of where we've been, what we've gone through. You know some of the vision. You work at national office where we're moving ahead. Why don't you just speak to you know our group? Uh, But I'm sure that there's other you know, uh, people listening that are part of other groups, other tribes, they're all in kind of the same boat we are. What would you say to to the church in Canada moving forward? Well, I mean, you've raised the issue of leadership training, and that's, you know, that's that's part of it. I mean, our leadership training, I teach in our Bible school, I love it, but uh, it needs to be experiential learning. Yeah. If we want urban church planters, they should be trained in an urban setting. Yeah. I, for years and years and years, I've suggested this, that we should, you know, set up a home and get a kind of like a like an apprenticeship residency type thing. Yep. yep. I mean, there's so many ways to deliver the, the factual part of education by distance learning. What they don't have is the hands on part. Like there are places in the world where a Pentecostal pastor doesn't get his credentials until he's planted a church. Yeah, that's true. That's okay. No, that's now, true. It might be a house church, but who cares? Yeah. He knows what he's doing. Yeah. So wouldn't it be amazing if, uh, you know, 50% or more of our Bible school graduates had planted a church that is a small cell group or something of new yeah. believers yeah. in downtown Toronto or Winnipeg or Vancouver or somewhere else like that? Yeah. They would have the confidence to do that for the rest of their career. Yeah. Instead of starting from, how do you do this? Yeah. This is really scary. Like, I come from a small town. I have to go to Toronto, you know, yeah. et cetera. So there's that aspect of the change in the leadership approach. Uh, and, and finding ways to do that with much more hands-on, much more, you know, local church-based or other other-based uh, things. Um, I think in the future we're going to have to work harder at understanding uh, how to speak to the culture. Yeah. Because they're not listening now, and and we actually it's probably good because some of the things we'd say would cause more trouble than to yeah, it's true. doors for us. Yep. Um, and we do have to, to, to work on the other side. Uh, there's been a conversation about possibly training apologists, people like Ravi Zacharias. Oh, let's multiply those guys. Yeah. Because there are people who are quite willing to answer and listen to the answers to spiritual questions. Yes. Unlike my generation was in the younger generations, but they need someone who'll give them good answers. Yeah. They're, those people are there and they're doing an amazing job. But we need to multiply some of those people because they're yeah. laying the groundwork for people to go to the next level of spiritual questioning in their own life mm-hmm. as opposed to the false barriers that, yeah. you know, correctness or whatever has, has thrown up in front of them. So finding ways to to uh, to move forward with that, I think, would be part of it. And I mean, just uh, more places and opportunities where we can learn from each other, where we can be together. I am so much yeah. for bringing people together. Yeah. When I started in this calling for first responders, I thought, you know what, we should get all these, and there's all these little agencies that are doing stuff. They got helplines and, 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 and support groups and all kinds of, and they don't, you know, they're kind of doing their thing, mom and pop. And I'm, I'm saying to myself, I want to get these guys in a room for a day, but I don't even know them. I know two of them, you know, out of 12 <laughs> or something. And then the Lord hooks me up with this guy, used to be a Baptist youth pastor, actually. 
and he's a he's a former medic with a PTSD, and this was his vision. He says, "I want to have a think tank." I said, "I'm with you, man. Yeah. Count me in." But we yeah. spent a whole day together, about thirty of us. Yeah, and I was sitting beside nurses and paramedics and a serving lieutenant colonel, and yeah. the military, all these amazing talking about problems, issues, opportunities, and so forth. And uh, and we'll do this more because there's more to be done, and so we can actually work together. I think we should be having some of those kind of conversations much more. Yeah, uh, with ourselves and with others in our communities and with other leaders and other faith leaders in terms of uh, Christian faith leaders elsewhere and learning from each other. Yeah. I got a, I got a, I got a question for you and then, then we'll, we'll, yeah. we'll a hundred years as a movement. So this is more specifically related to, to PAUC and, and maybe some of your study and just maybe some initial kind of gut feelings um, one of the things that I've been hearing people say is when it, you know when a movement's about a hundred years old or somewhere around that age, uh, the ability to change is is more difficult. Now we've got more, you know, responsibilities. We're you know kind of a bigger fish now in a you know in the pond, and you know there's maybe more to lose. Um, and so, what do you think? we need to do to to bring about the change that's needed so that we can see the growth that we saw in the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s um to see that percentage of growth what do you, what do you think we need to do to change well i mean if our goal is to simply replicate growth of the past that may not be the right goal because okay. growth may well look different than it does today correct okay so, yeah. Fathers, you talk about a missional community and they say, you don't have a building? Yeah. Even in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, West Ontario had a church planting fund of a, of a, of a million dollars that you could borrow for 2% to build something. Yeah. Not to start the church, but to build something. Okay. Yeah. 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 But um, I think change process, I've done a lot of thinking about this because of going through frustrations with organizations. Yeah. Into detail which organizations within our movement, but uh, and, and a lot of thought. But the change process has two poles. The first pole is identity, because if you change everything, you cease being who you are. Okay. And you you lose, like the guy who got shot in the movie. You know, you yeah. lose your personality. In his case, it was good, but not normally. That's the thing to go for. Not normally. So, yeah. Understanding who you are, and then understanding your context properly. And see that, see how those two things have to work together. And I, you know, I, I can't go to the details. As I say, I wrote a hundred-page manuscript on it, trying to think this through. But there's a lot of good information in Scripture how change process works. Yeah. We've just never identified it because a lot of the people who wrote the books looked at it from a business mindset and tried to fit the the, the, the strategic planning and stuff into the a few little Bible verses. I studied the life of Moses and the change he brought Israel through. I studied the life of Jesus and the incredible change he had to bring as the non-Messiah Messiah that he was. Yeah. And I studied the growth of the early church and the whole Jew-Gentile issue and so forth and how that all unfolded and some of the characteristics of that. And I think we have to give more serious thought to what that looks like. Yeah. But in the context of conversations, face-to-face conversations yeah. that are generational, not just the district superintendents. I love those guys. They're awesome. Yeah. They do an amazing job. They have an incredible burden that they carry. I really appreciate them. Yeah. But what about the guy who's two years in the ministry? Yeah. And it's just starting to figure things out. He may well have insights today because, see, 
you had the story, you heard the story of the guys who stand up and say, oh, well, we have to think differently because our culture is non-Christian. And, and the answer to the professor was, sir, I grew up in that culture. I, I'm good with it. Mm-hmm. You're not, but I am because mm-hmm. it's my culture. Right. Okay. Yeah. So they the ones teaching us. Yes. Level. I, I think it's important that you make a, you make a good point. It's, I think it, I think part of it for us is probably rediscovering who we actually are, not maybe who we've kind of, you know, like our initial pioneering who we were when we started as a movement, when they signed the document saying, we're going to be a group, we're going to be a family. This is what we're going to be about. I think recapturing some of that, I think will be helpful, but also I th- you make a good point about understanding it contextually, man. We could talk about, we could talk about this all day, Jim, we'll get you back on another time. Thanks for, thanks so much for being on the podcast today. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.